0: Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you are here this morning, and uh, Hope Church Online, good to uh, good to see you and good to worship with you this morning. We're in this sermon series uh, entitled Deep Comfort. Uh, we've said so far that we have a comfort as Christians, a comfort that transcends our suffering. We said that we have a comfort that actually is also realized in our sufferings. We need our sufferings to to understand and experience the deep comfort we have, and today we're looking at uh, another question: um, What if, what if our sufferings don't lighten up, lessen up? What, what if things don't get better in life? Uh, what if, what if the cancer doesn't get healed? What if, what if things never turn around the way that we want them to? Um, what if we persist? In, in trials and, and sufferings. Um, we're looking at the book of Joel today, the Old Testament prophet Joel. You can start uh, turning to Joel chapter 3. I want to read actually something from chapter 1 real quick. Uh, look at this from Joel chapter 1. Um, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young Locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten, and the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, and the olive oil fails. What if, what if that seems to be a metaphor for, for, for your life, just one discouragement, disappointment after another? Do we have comfort even in that? In that? And the answer is yes, and that's what we're going to look at today. So turn to Joel chapter three. I'm going to start in verse nine. A longer scripture to read from. By the way, if you if you're looking at your note sheet today, uh, there's going to be a, a few uh, small changes. And the one point we're not going to get to. It's a great point. We'll get to it. It's another sermon. Um, but if you're following along with your sermons, maybe a with the sermon notes, maybe a little different. Uh, Joel chapter nine, uh, chapter three, verse nine, and uh, listen to what God says. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle for the harvest, it is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, Dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom, a desert waste because of the violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall they leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. So let's get a view of this chapter. There are three primary subjects of this chapter, right? There's the Lord. Obviously, he's one of the actors, one of the subjects of this this chapter. Uh, There is Judah. You heard Judah mentioned. Uh, That's God's people, the ancient Israelites. You read in that text Jerusalem and Zion, another name for Jerusalem, and Uh, Jerusalem and Zion meant much more than just the location, the physical location of the city of Jerusalem. Um, It represented God's people there. Just like when you say, hi, Houston, you're not saying hi to the ground and buildings. You are saying hi to the inhabitants of, of Houston. So Jerusalem, and Zion, that represents God's people, Judah, the Israelites. And... Then there's a third subject, and that is nations. Uh, The nations that are mentioned in this chapter, and they represent all of the people who oppose God's people, the nation of Israel. And in this chapter, we hear about this great conflict that is going to happen. And it does not describe a literal battle on some piece of turf with God grabbing some weaponry of his own and ready to duke it out. That's not the nature of this battle. See, Jehoshaphat, you read the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is a name that means the Lord will judge. It comes from two words, Jeho, and that's the from the Hebrew name for the Lord, it's where we get the word Jehovah and Shaphat, which means to judge. The Lord will judge. The Lord will judge. God says that one day He's going to summon these nations that oppose his people to the valley of judgment. And just before this, in chapter two, chapter two of Joel, maybe the most Recognized chapter because it's the, the chapter that talks about the great day of the Lord, the awesome day of the Lord, and God pours out his spirit um, over, over the earth that we hear about Pentecost Sunday. That's Joel 2 talks about the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So Joel 3 tells about this ultimate judgment, the judgment day of God. Now, what does this have to do with comfort? Well, we'll see in the Scripture three things. This speaks to the extent of the reason for and the hope in God's judgment. The extent of God's judgment, the, the reason for God's judgment, and the hope in God's judgment. So, the extent of God's judgment, what can we say about that? Well, we can say that God's judgment will be severe, Uh, That's the tone of chapter 3. It's the tone of verses 9 and 10, isn't it? Verses 9 and 10 say, prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords. Better come ready, in other words, with a sword. Beat your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. In other words, God is saying, you better muster your courage. You know, in the Bible, there's a couple of places that uh, proclaim peace, where God says, take your swords and your spears and beat them into something useful. Beat them into plowshares and pruning hooks, something useful in this time of peace. But here that is reversed, and God says, you better come ready to this valley of judgment. Beat those plows and pruning hooks into swords and spears. In other words, God's judgment will be severe. This won't be some slap on the wrist. It's not going to be a timeout for all these nations. There's going to be a bloody battle, and yet God is not going to receive any wounds. He will be inflicting the wounds on the day of judgment. And another thing we uh, can say about this day of judgment um, is that God's judgment will be complete. It will be complete. So look at these two, uh, two verses, 11 and 14. Verse 11 says, Come quickly, all you nations, from every side. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes. Remember in the Old Testament, I don't use words like great multitudes to, to, um, to convey emphasis and um excessive amount. They just repeat the same word. Multitude, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And that's not going to be the people's decision. It's going to be God's decision, whatever happens in that valley. So his judgment is going to be severe. It's going to be complete. Every one that opposes God and God's people will appear in this valley for judgment. Now, so far, this judgment scene involves God. It involves those who oppose God and God's people. But other places in the Bible give a a rather sobering fact. You may be thinking about some other places in the scriptures where we hear about the the day of the Lord or, or the day of judgment or Christ's judgment. And that is... The sobering point is this. In the day of the Lord, Christ will judge all people. All people. Everyone gets to appear before Christ is judged. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So not one person is exempt from the judgment of the Lord. So let me speak kind of broadly here in light of this, in light of the fact that we all um, appear before Christ as judge, uh, broadly speaking, people, including many Christians, they don't really like to think of God like this, of being a judge, right? It's not a warm, fuzzy thought. Because what Joel chapter 3 describes is God's complete wild freedom to act very harshly. God doesn't hold back in this judgment. He's very free to act as he pleases. And we don't like God to act harshly, right? We don't don't like that. We, We don't like thinking that there could be God's Severe judgment for our severe lack of judgment. We don't like that thought. We want, we want a safety net. We want God's grace to be our safety net, right? We want to be able to you know, go through life and do what we want to do, and then we've got a safety net of God's grace to catch us. That's what we want. But the Bible says that one day Jesus will return, and he will judge, and it will be severe. And all of a sudden, it doesn't sound like comfort. It doesn't sound like good news. It doesn't sound all that good at all. All of a sudden, it sounds a little intense. So we we need to take a step back and evaluate this and start by thinking about Joel 3. Is this a concern for God's people or is it a comfort for God's people? Joel 3 is a comfort For God's people, judgment is a comfort for God's people. Now, there are times when God issues a warning for his people, but Joel 3 is a promise for God's people. And this is how we're going to look at judgment, and we'll unpack how it is comfort. Christ's judgment is a comfort to his people. And we act this way, too. For example, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, every once in a while. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we don't recite with gusto, Jesus was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into hell the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and then all of a sudden get kind of worried and kind of quietly say, and... From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We don't, we don't whisper that all of a sudden. We, we belt that out with gusto as well. And he will come back and return and judge the living and the dead. We belt that out about Jesus. Why? Because we know it's good news. There's something inside of us that tells us that it is good news. So on the surface level, we may want a God that's kind of, judges softly and, you know, doesn't really mess with sin. But inside we know what we really want is for God to judge all that is wrong and put things right. So let's look at the reason for God's judgment. Why does God judge all people? All right, Heidelberg Catechism says it is a comfort, God's judgment. Question and answer 52. question is, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And the answer, in all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine he will condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of heaven. Now, one thing that this says is Christ judges, Christ judges injustices done to his people. He judges injustices, that is hard to say, done to his people. Who came up with that slide? Yeah, so, Joel chapter 3, verse 2. Look at it. God says, I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance. My people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. See these injustices that God is saying it's going to receive my judgment. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink, so you can see what's going on. God is taking these injustices done to his people very, very personally. And this is really important. When people think that ah, anything goes in life and God won't really do anything in response, what do they really Believing about God? Well, they are believing that God is detached, that he's distant. He's not too concerned with the events in the world. Rather, what does God do? He takes things very, very personally when injustices are done to his people. So what is the reason for God's judgment? It is to defend everything that God desires for his people, It is to ultimately give to us the life that God wants for us to have. It is to take everything that is wrong and broken and evil and wicked and sinful, everything that opposes God's will for his people, and make it all right. That's the reason for God's judgment. So Christ makes right all wrongs, and he restores what has been lost. That's the reason for God's judgment. To set rights to wrongs, uh, to set wrongs to rights, I'm sorry, and to restore what was lost. So earlier in, in chapter 1 of Joel, remember I read about the, the locusts devouring all the crops and what one set of locusts left, other locusts ate, and what those locusts left, other locusts ate, and everything was gone. God sent those locusts. They didn't just appear. They were part of God's restoring plan for Israel. Now, you might say, that's a pretty harsh restoring plan, but, but God follows that up with this amazing promise. In Joel chapter 2, verse 25, God says this. Get a load of this promise. "'I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten.'" The great locust and the young locust, the other locust, the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you, I will repay, God says. Wherever there is loss, it will be replaced. And that is a a truth that Christians should cherish. Wherever there is loss, God will replace. If your crop is wiped out, it's all gone. What happens? Well, there's a huge financial cost, right, to replace that. There's a huge time cost. People having to replant, tend the harvest, reap this new harvest. There's a, there's a financial cost. There's a time cost. Family members in the harvest fields, again, instead of at home with family. Time cost, relationship cost. There could be a health cost as people lose their lives and starvation, not enough food. Maybe they're not healthy enough to recover from routine illnesses. There's a financial cost, a time cost, a relationship cost, health cost. God says, I will replace what is lost. What does this mean for us today? Well, it means if if you go through life and you feel like your decisions have cost you, maybe cost you dearly. There's a promise that God will restore what has been lost. How many of you uh, went to college and changed majors at least once? Anyone do that twice? (laughs) We know people that have changed over and over again. You know when you do that? there's a there's a there's a time cost right there's a time cost and there's a financial cost it takes extra time and money it can be disappointing you might think oh what a waste you know what god says god says that loss will not be a waste i will recover it for you somehow i will recover it you go through life maybe there's been a relationship stressed and strained and broken God says, I'll recover that. My grandmother had two brothers, Jim and Skip, growing up, the three of them. They were like three peas in a pod. Very, very close. And brothers Jim and Skip were very close. Time went on. Jim and Skip married two women, and those two women did not like one another. And it drove a wedge between... My Uncle Jim and my Uncle Skip and their relationship was largely broken throughout the, rest, throughout the rest of their life. God says, when you go through life and you have losses like that, the promise is, I will repay what has been lost. You know, when people die young, there's great sadness. And, and often the lament in someone who dies young is, just the loss of experience, not being able to experience certain things in life. My mom died relatively, relatively young. She died before I got married. Any of her kids got married, died, did not grow up to see her grandkids. And I've thought about that. And I've thought, oh, I so wish my mom could have met Melissa and Susan my other kids because she would have loved them and they would have loved her. We lament these lost experiences, and God says, I'll recover that. I'll recover that for you. What does it him say? Be still, my soul. Be still, my soul, that Jesus can repay from his own fullness all that he takes away. God will restore what has been lost. And I ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that God restores what has been lost? Do you want to believe that? Listen, when you are discouraged, when you are deeply discouraged by life, what is happening in life, you hang on to that truth. You hang on to Joel chapter 2, verse 25. I will repay what has been lost, God says. And you preach it to yourself daily. You find hope in that. And one other thing that this means is Christians don't have to cry out despair where there's lost, and Christians don't have to try to find someone who is to blame for my loss and blast them when things go wrong in my life. Putting it another way, Christians don't have to seek vengeance against those who wrong us. You know, people can worry if You talk of a God that ultimately judges all of his enemies, gets them in the end. Isn't that going to breed followers who do the same thing, who just try to go after their enemies? Isn't that going to breed Christians that do the same thing, who seek retribution against our enemies? And the answer is no. No, the exact opposite is true. Romans chapter 12 speaks to that. Verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Christianity says, don't pass along hatred. You don't have to get even with someone who hurts you. Why? Because verse 19 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. God says, I will repay, says the Lord. Because we know that God is judge, we don't have to be one. We don't have to be one. We can rest. What is the reason for God's judgment? It is to judge everything that is wrong, everything that is wicked and evil, and to make it right. And so... Near the end of Joel chapter 3, we have this beautiful picture of restoration, don't we? Look at verse 18. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water and a fountain will flow out of the Lord's houses and will water the valley of Acacia's. Don't you see that God's judgment gives great hope because God will restore what is lost and he will make right what is wrong. Now you might think, okay, this all sounds good, but what if I'm in the part that's wrong? (laughs) How can I know that I won't experience God's wrath? And so we have to look how we can really hope in God's judgment. And this passage shows us how. Look at verse 21. The key is in verse 21. God says, shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. Now, there is an innocent party here. But who is it? Let me tell you it's not the Israelites they're not the innocent party. Remember God had to send the locusts in response to the idolatry of the Israelites. But here God calls them innocent. You see our assurance of hope is that God calls us innocent as well. You see there there was someone who did have innocent blood. There was someone who shed innocent blood. Who was it? It was Jesus. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel. Good news is that we take on Christ's innocence when we put our faith in Him. Or as that Heidelberg Catechism that we read earlier puts it, we await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. And all you need to do To have hope in God's judgment is to receive as a gift. Christ dying on the cross, shedding his innocent blood in your place to make you innocent before God. Jesus is the one who took on the wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus is the one who took on and tasted death. And judged death and defeated death so that you will know that God will not let that last enemy, enemy of ours death claim one bit of good from us. Not one bit of loss will we occur from death. God will put all things right and he will restore what has been lost. And that is our hope. And that is our deep comfort. Let's pray. Oh, Christ, you've tasted death for us, so it has lost its sting. You tasted death for us, you drank it deeply so that we wouldn't really have to. You defeated death. so that it wouldn't rob from us, so that it wouldn't take from us anything that you won't restore and give back. Lord, we give you thanks. Lord, we pray that we would find great rest. We pray that you would lift our anxieties over loss in life, that we would hear this promise, I will bring back what has been lost. Lord, we pray that if we are holding grudges over anyone, if we are bitter and angry and moved to the point of seeking revenge or vengeance against someone for damage done to us, that we can rest one, knowing that in the end you put things right. And two, that any place of judgment, it is yours, it is not ours. We bring peace to our hearts, Lord. Let, let that worry, let that anxiety slip away from us. Lord, we renew our trust in you today. For you bring all things back to good. And we rejoice and we give Great thanks, in Jesus' name, amen.